Hello, hello, and once again, welcome to Solid Grounds Online Campus. And how in the world is it February 18th already? And we are four days into the Lenten season, looking forward to the Easter holiday. And today, we find ourselves in the middle of this perilous journey of talking about how Jesus followers relate to governmental authorities and how Jesus followers engage in government policies here, uh, no matter what nation they may find themselves in. And um, so uh, you don't have to, this isn't sequential, uh, but if you want to catch up, all of our stuff is on YouTube and, and podcasts. Uh, but today, uh, I, I guess it's not a new confession, but if you've been around for a while, you, you've probably picked up on the fact that I am an unashamed, way out there Star Trek fan. And one of my favorite characters is this alien who is, is outside of, who can exist outside of space and time. So it seems like he's almost omniscient and almost omnipotent. But the thing about Q is, well, besides he annoys multiple, multiple crews on Star Trek, he actually put humanity on trial. And I love this. I love this back and forth tension between especially the Enterprise, the next generation crew and Q. Because he was annoying, but he would ask these questions about humanity that he had observed. And I imagine, I would imagine if Q was annoying you and me today, he might pop into our lives and say, I've been observing your cable news outlets, all of them. Fox and CNN and this one and that one. And I've been analyzing your social media outlets and the, the themes that pop up on there. I've, I've analyzed your hashtags on X or Twitter or whatever it's called and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And I'm wondering, why is your society so polarized? Why can't you seem to get along? And it would be a fair question. It would be a very Fair question, because I've noticed in the past 25 years or so, issues pop up all the time. We, uh, human it, let's, let's localize it to North America. There's a disaster. Uh, maybe it's a storm. Maybe it's a virus. Maybe it's uh, something uh, really uh, a big problem that we're facing. And oh my goodness, how quickly the focus shifts from okay, what's best for the people to do? And then all of a sudden, the solutions become very polarized and political. At first, and let's take, uh, let's take uh, the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. At first, it was like, how do we keep people safe? And then very quickly, it turned to groups of people saying, they're handling it wrong. No, we're not handling it wrong. You're handling it wrong. Well, this isn't a new thing. It's really easy to pick on. And I've been, the first time I, I heard about this was, like, or thought about it, was 2004. And I remember reading in Donald Miller's book, Searching for God Knows What, he, he proposed an alien type situation and said, the trend is that people are spending less and less time focused on solving problems, and they're spending more and more times name calling people on the other side of an aisle, they're spending more time name-calling people on the other side of a political spectrum. And today, 
I want us to focus on one reason this might be the case. It's no way is it as simplistic as oh, this is the only reason. But this is a biggie. And I'm coming to you today not only with, oh, this is, a, this is something really brilliant. I've read in all these different books and I've, I've taken from Scripture, which, by the way, if you want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1, we'll be there today and in John 17. But today, I want to explore this with you with some battle scars. They're not open wounds anymore, but this is, uh, this is a lot of stuff that, that I've lived out. Haven't been perfect by any stretch of the me by any stretch, uh, but I'm grateful for what I've been through when it comes to why people are so polarized. And uh, Arthur Brooks is an author. He's a Christ follower. He's also a Harvard professor, and he wrote this great book called "Love Your Enemies: How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt." There it is, Johnny. Ding, 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 ding. The one aspect of how polarized the world is becoming can be summed up in this word contempt. I found a definition for contempt. The unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. Worthlessness of another human being who's made in the image of God. So, a quick reminder, this talk, this series of talks is for Jesus followers. If you haven't given control of your life to Jesus, I want you to observe. You get to, you get to watch from that. You, you, you haven't signed up for this yet. But we're going to stay close to these, these scriptures and, and to the, the teachings of Jesus. And contempt that we're talking about today for a Jesus follower meaning that you could you could treat another person like they're worthless contempt means that you could speak of another human being like they're worthless does that belong in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ i would submit to you that contempt an attitude a posture of the heart has no place in the life of a believer it doesn't mean that you agree with every person. doesn't mean that, that you endorse everything that another human being stands for. But contempt is another thing altogether. And it's not just in politics. Not at all. I remember when I was in seminary, my wife worked for the university at the same time, for the dean of women's office. So she received free tuition. And she convinced me to burn one of my, one of my elective courses on a marriage counseling course at the master's degree level. It was like free counseling for us. It was amazing and it was really helpful for us as newlyweds. And we read a book about this thick and my for reference, it was about four inches thick by the expert in the field of why couples get divorced. His name's John Gottman. The book's called The Marriage Clinic. He's been all over the place. He's all over the internet. He has lots of books out there. But this guy threw, and not just some, some like uh, intuition and reading the energy in the room, through tens of thousands of hours worth of research with people hooked up to electrodes and observation of couples. Over the decades of research, John Gottman 
can predict within an hour of spending time or observing a couple whether they're going to be divorced within the next few years. And his predictions are 94% accurate. He even talks about, it's, it's a bit of a curse now. He can, he, he's out on a date with his wife and he can hear other couples in the restaurant and he thinks, oh no, there's the indicators of divorce. And after decades of studying, the biggest factor that indicates divorce, things like sarcasm, sneering, eye rolling is a big one, an attitude that says you're worthless, Contempt is the biggest indicator of divorce in all of these thousands of couples that he has studied. So, if you want to talk, uh, want to want to figure out which way a marriage is going, you can watch them talk about a difficult subject. And according to Gottman, you'll get an idea about how healthy the marriage is. Well, let's zoom back out into politics and our just our, our cultural discourse. My goodness, we don't need a ton of evidence. All we have to do is turn on the TV, take social media out of our pocket, or, or the conversations we have with our friends. Eventually, a politician's going to come up. I'm poking at you a little bit. I'm, I'm also preaching at myself. How often do we talk about politicians with contempt? Again, it's one thing to talk about an idea, a solution, be passionate about it. But contempt, that's dangerous when it seeps into our hearts as a posture towards another human being. It has no place in the life of a believer. So why is this a big deal? Am I just, am I just an easygoing guy that wants everyone to get along? No, 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 no. I don't think so. And, and to make the point, let's zoom out first. Our starting point isn't going to be an election. And I've been very careful not to mention candidates and certain platforms. This is a big level stuff. And today, let's zoom out to the cosmic, cosmic scale. And then we'll zero in back to, to contempt. Let's take a look at what God is up to with all of this. In Ephesians chapter 1. Now, this, this is, a, this is, a, this is a, a text that I chose. This was my first series it's solid ground because the letter of Ephesians is packed with so many dense theological nuggets that teach us about God. This letter teaches us about God's priorities and what God's up to. God wants to rescue humanity as a people. God's up to redeeming humanity. This, this letter talks about how you and I have the opportunity to be adopted into God's family because of what Jesus has done on the cross and his resurrection. And I want to zero in on the, the second half of verse 8 going to verse 10 in chapter 1. And Paul writes here, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Here it is, you guys, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God is bringing things back together. So stick with me here for just a second because we're talking about cosmic scale type stuff here. You look around. Our world, not just the earth, we'll get there in a second, but the culture we live in, the, the rules that we live in, the unspoken rules that we live in, the laws 
Our world is full of fractures. Breakups happen. Relationships break down. Relationships break up. Marriages break up. Fractures come into families. Business relationships go south. Even rock bands break up. People, star athletes leave the team or the, or the coach is fired. Some of you have stories about churches that have broken up, broken up. Things disintegrate from unity to an us versus them mentality. Things can disintegrate to a him versus her, his word against hers, her word against his, or me versus you. Our world is full of fractures. I told you we'd go there. Nature is full of fractures too. Our bodies are breaking down. I'm sorry to tell you that. That's so depressing. Our bodies are literally breaking down, losing skin cells and, and breaking. Plants break down, especially if they're in my house. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, rocks can be broken apart. Sometimes they cause beauty, like the Great Grand Canyon. Buildings in the created world, buildings do not uh, become more and more solid. They, their roofs don't become more and more leak-proof. As they age, they break down. Equipment breaks down. Structures and society break down. There's a really fancy word for this, and it's called entropy. It's one of the laws of our physical universe, stating that, well, the first one is matter can't be created or destroyed. And then further down the line, entropy states that things are moving from a state of order to disorder. There's a gradual decline into chaos. And Ephesians 1 is saying that God is already at work causing chaos within chaos. God is... When you reverse chaos, you're bringing things back to order. God's bringing all of this into, in, into a state of order under Jesus Christ. Because left to it, its own devices, people, our bodies, nature, the stuff we make, on its own, on their own, all of those things move to a state of disorder. And we need God to bring all of it back together. Paul is saying here, that heaven and earth and everything in between will come to unity under Christ. That's some big, high-level stuff. Let that sink in. That's what God's up to. That's his big mission. Think about uh, the revelator, John, in Revelation chapter 21, where he talks about God's dwelling place will be among the people. This image of God's brought everyone and everything together. And Paul says it's going to be placed under Christ. Not just President Jesus, but King of the universe Jesus. That's what God is up to. And when you say yes to Jesus, that's where we are to be up to as well. That's what our priority ultimately is as well. Now... Navigate with me, if you would, scrolling or, or turning in your Bibles to John chapter 17. So this is the big picture stuff. We're going to look at what is the big picture for Jesus. And in particular, what he was praying about on his last night before crucifixion. And what someone prays about 
That tells you a lot about their priorities. So in John chapter 17 and verse 11, this is a prayer of Jesus in the garden. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Now, don't miss this part. Look at the scripture up on the screen right now. This is why Jesus wants the Father to protect them, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus wants the relationships of his disciples, that's who he's talking about. He wants the relationships of his disciples to be a preview of what God is up to in the world. Unity. And also, it's not, Jesus doesn't just pray about the disciples way back 2,000 years ago. In verse 20, Jesus prays for you and me, the disciples that will come later. Hopefully you're a disciple. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. For Jesus, so if you're going to get mad at me, this is Jesus talking. For Jesus, unity isn't optional. Unity is at the center of the mission. It is mission critical that we fight for unity. We guard it carefully. We build a fence around that. Because if this broken world, this broken universe that's trapped in entropy, if it's going to believe in Jesus, they need to see the unity of God's people. And Jesus repeats it again in in verse 22. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. This is a big deal. And I hope, I don't want to just use big words. Like, oh, here's big words. God is up to unity. Like this is like so, like we can't graduate from this. Like this is a priority to Jesus and there's something in here that that if we miss, we're going to go way off in a wrong direction. So unity. And when I say unity, when we read Jesus' prayer about unity, some of you may have images in your head of all of us looking the same. Maybe it's dressing the same. Maybe when you think, ooh, unity, you're, you're actually, your mind is mistakenly going to uniformity. Do we all have to talk like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons? Do we all have to, to vote the same? Do we all have to, to eat the same way? So short answer, does unity equal uniformity? Two letters, no talked about this before. Just a refresher. Why doesn't it have to look like uniformity? Just take a look at the example of Jesus's life, his inner circle. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, were in Jesus's inner circle. A collaborator with the Roman Empire is a tax collector. That was Matthew. 
a killer of collaborators with the Roman Empire is Simon the Zealot. Lots of lively discussions had to happen in that circle. I imagine Matthew kind of, the campfire's dying down and everyone's kind of bedding down for the night as, as the disciples and Jesus are traveling the Jewish countryside. I would imagine Matthew's looking over at Simon going, hey, uh, John, can I squeeze in between you and Jesus? Or, oh yeah, Peter's got the sword. Maybe, hey, Peter, scoot over. I want to get between you and Jesus. Oh, there was lots of diversity, and even in Jesus's inner circle. Fast forward to the end in Revelation, these images of how all of this is going to end up. I love the verse that says, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, every language will kneel for Jesus Christ. So in the midst of diversity, there is unity around Jesus is Lord. That's our rallying cry. Jesus is Lord. Unity for Jesus' followers for making other disciples, not merely converse, but people who have given their lives over to being reshaped by Jesus. There's unity around following Jesus' command to love one another. He said, I give you a new command. You see all this? This is awesome. I give you a new one. Love one another. If you do that, if you really hone in on that and pull on that thread, you'll do all of this stuff. It'll all be taken care of. So, we're talking about the universe, how God wants to reverse the breakdown of society and, and biology and geology. We've talked about Jesus' main priority is for us to, 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 to move towards each other around the right things, around Jesus as Lord. So we come back to contempt. Contempt is like that, that pebble in the windshield that can pop up there. And it, and it, and it, it doesn't get better on, by itself. It, it keeps spreading and spreading until you can only see the cracks. Contempt is so destructive because it demonstrates a failure to love, which is Jesus' new command. And I'm picking on politics because we're talking about our political engagement. It's the most obvious example. It divides people. It takes diversity and, and brings it into division. So, universe scale, Jesus' main mission. Here's the bottom line if you've got to go. If you're about to hit the pause button, the bottom line is don't put political opinions ahead of your relationships. Have political opinions that are informed by your faith. We'll get to that. But unity around saying Jesus is Lord, that's the priority. Don't put political opinions ahead of your relationships. I'll give you an example from, from American history. A lot of us grew up in, in a classroom with the, the presidents, they were stapled up on the wall, and some of the first presidents, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, they started out as good buddies. But they learned the hard way that political opinions can ruin a friendship. So these guys stuck together throughout, the, you know, emerging from the colonial days and forming the Declaration of Independence through the, the Revolutionary War. They stuck together, but then in the 1790s, they were competitors. 
and John Adams became the first person to, to lose his re-election bid, and he lost to his buddy, Thomas Jefferson. And by then, their friendship had fractured, their philosophies had diverged, and they had done that to such a point where John Adams didn't even stay for the inauguration. He left at 4 a.m. on Inauguration Day. He couldn't stand it. And for more than a decade, their friendship was ice cold. For 11 years, zero communication. And it wasn't until they were both out of, they had been out of office for a long time. And John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson in 1812, saying Happy New Year. And the, the ice began to thaw a little bit. And now one of them wrote to the other saying, hey, well, let's just forget it. And, um, and then uh, I think it was Jefferson wrote to Adams and said, Let, let's forget all the stuff behind us. And Adams wrote back like, no, 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 no. Like we were both right to have our opinions. And the idea was we were just wrong to let that come between our friendship. And they're an example that people can have different ideas and still be friends. And just a little hint, you know, Paul talks about that's one of the only ways that the world will take notice of us. Jesus says anyone can love someone that's just like them, believes just like them, and thinks just like them. It's Christian love that moves towards someone that acts differently, thinks differently, believes differently. And with, with these guys, as a, a nice little bow with their friendship restored. They'd started as friends, became enemies, friendship was restored. They died on the same day, which happened to be July 4th, 1826, on America's 50th birthday. And my reading of their lives, I love biographies, these two politicians weren't the most devout of Christians. So what about, what about you and me? What does that say for us and our relationships? Maybe, you know, we're already, we're already into the, the, the election cycle and all of that stuff. What, what are your, where's, the, where's the status of your heart towards people you disagree with? What does your commitment to say Jesus is Lord dictate that you do with your friends, that you talk about with your friends? And also, if, if we wanted to do an exercise just for fun, I could probably come up with a half-decent sermon talking about that Jesus was a Democrat. I could come up with a half-decent sermon that Jesus was for sure a Republican. Both of them would be half-decent because I would have to cherry-pick verses about whatever, whatever side uh, finds most important and, and, and have to make a case that this is the most important. And ironically, using the same Bible to argue each case. And that may be confusing to some of you. Why, how is that possible? Because so often we find ourselves trying to translate what Jesus said and did into the modern framework of what political options we have available to us. It's really confusing. We, sometimes I, I, I hear people talk about right or left so much, right or, right or, left, right or left, that's, that's one dimension. I feel like Jesus is on such a different dimension. <laughs> a whole other plane of existence. So, you want to know what's not confusing? Our politics are confusing. What's not confusing is what Jesus said. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
You know what's not confusing? Jesus saying, love each other. That's the new command. You know what's not confusing? Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. So we can have opinions. Paul says, be fully convinced in your own mind. But those opinions are way down the list compared to how we treat others. Because these issues and the parties, they change over time. You don't believe me? Well, tell me your opinion on the National Bank. You know, put it in the comments below. That used to be a huge deal. Okay, you don't believe me that opinions and parties change over the time? I would love to know your thoughts about William Jennings Bryant. You remember him. He's the guy who ran for president three times. What a candidate, baby. Or how many, I'd love to know, just raise your hand, uh, hit the like button. If you're a Whig party member, any Whig party members out there, woohoo! This stuff changes, but the call of Jesus Christ never changes. The, the impetus on us to keep the, the right things first, it still remains. So what does it take for us to get there? I'm not just gonna dump all this stuff on you. I have three suggestions for us to combat contempt. If it's in there, let's, let's do a little house heart cleaning and clean contempt out of there. Number one, number one suggestion, for the, especially for the rest of this election cycle, be confidently curious. If you have said yes to Jesus, you are the most secure person on the planet, potentially. Your, your eternity is secure. Your identity is rock solid. The creator of the universe calls you his beloved child. And this, you know, this all-wise, all-knowing God knows you and is holding you. So, why do, what reason do we have to be defensive? So, be confidently curious. When you disagree with someone, when you come across somebody that you disagree with, and instead of, of giving in to that critical reflex, what if you were willing to learn from them? Doesn't mean you're gonna agree with them, but here's the thing. If we can't understand why someone would believe the way they believe, then there's something for us to learn. Now, notice I didn't say it's, it's not arrogantly curious. It's confidently curious because we believe in God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So what in the world could possibly threaten us? There may be ideas that stretch you. There may be ideas that, that ugh, you taste them. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. So a challenge to you is to, to find someone that you disagree with. And if you don't have anyone that you disagree with, that's a different sermon altogether. But here's, here's, the, here's the thing. Find someone you disagree with and ask them two questions. Say, what led you to that view? You know, how did you get there? How did you land there? And then, have you always believed that? Or has your thinking changed over the, over the years? And just have a conversation confidently, but maintain that curious posture. Number two, you tough guys, listen up, because you're going to hate this. Be compellingly meek. I know, I know, we don't like that word. And the word Jesus uses, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. That meek 
our English brain hears that and it rhymes with weak. So we think meek equals weak. No! This Latin word that it comes from, that the, the, the word meek comes from, this image in the original language is the taming of a wild stallion. Be compellingly meek. This unbridled aggressiveness and all of the strength are under control. Meek is strong and wise and measured. What would our world look like today if meekness characterized every news story that we saw, every social media post that we saw? So, I love, uh, I love thinking about this. You know, how convincing is a rant? Have you ever been convinced by someone's soapbox rant? And I'm not saying, let's just be chill, everybody. No. Like, let's be meek. Let's be measured and wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Uh, talked about, uh, I've been reading Arthur Brooks lately. He wrote this book. Uh, in there he says, remember that no one has ever been insulted into agreement. You can only persuade with love. And Andy Stanley says it this way, sometimes you can make a point or you can make a difference but you may not be able to do both at the same time. So meekness, it's stronger than flying off at the handle. And we need God's help to do that. Amen, right? And lastly, be courageously loving. What's the most courageous kind of love? It's in Matthew chapter five, the words of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Arthur Brooks again, he asks, do you love someone who disagrees with you? How comfortable would you be if someone who believed on you, if you were to, it would be perfect overlap with the things, your opinions. How comfortable would you be if that person insulted a friend that you had that didn't agree with you? Brooks calls that courageous love. That's when you're willing to stand up for someone you disagree with on behalf of them, even though you agree, because you may think, oh, you know, the person I agree with is right, but they're right in the wrong way. I can't stand for how they're making that point. There's contempt there, and that has no place. I need to stand up for the humanity and the dignity, even though I disagree with this person. That's the courageous kind of love. What if we were open to doing that? It, or starting that journey, even if we're not good at it. But for the sake of this world, for the sake of what God is up to, will you consider living this way? I hope that you will. Because you're confident, you can be curious. Because Jesus is fighting the battles for you, you can be meek. And because Jesus loved you, you can be courageously loving. So... I'm, I can't, can't do better, and prayer isn't a competition anyway, but I want to pray Jesus' prayer over your family, over your neighborhood, your office, and over, over your region and, and world. And would you please join me, uh, join your heart with this prayer, and let's pray that we would get on God's agenda. Dear Heavenly Father, we pause for a moment and ask that, that you would speak so loudly in our heads 
that you would recalibrate the direction of our hearts and you would, good grief, Jesus, would you please hit the reset button on our attitude towards the people that we disagree with? God, we pray that we would be strong and confident, but we can only have, we need wisdom to do this, Lord Jesus. Would you please give us wisdom like you promised and that you would give it, like James wrote, freely and without finding fault. Give us wisdom to gather around you as our Lord and to protect our unity. And when we do speak for truth, God, would your spirit fill us and, and, and may we be bright, shining lights in every conversation. And when we leave a conversation with someone we disagree with, may their first and lasting impression be that you are Lord, that you really are Lord. God, I pray for every person that's struggling with relationship breakdown because of political opinions. I pray for healing in their hearts. God, I pray that all parties involved, no matter who was wrong or who was right, who was right, that their eyes would be opened to your kingdom, that their hearts would receive healing and that they would have the courage to reconcile. So along with unity, God, we pray for healthy reconciliation and peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, fun talking about politics, right? Thank you so much for sticking with us and uh, we can't wait to be back with you next week as we start wrapping up the series and until we're together again. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.